the section from the text this morning is entitled, Atonement and Miracles. So I'll read it and we'll discuss it as we go along here. I am in charge of the process of atonement, which I undertook to begin. When you offer a miracle to any of my brothers, you do it to yourself and me. The reason you come before me is that I do not need miracles for my own atonement, but I stand at the end in case you fail temporarily. My part in the atonement is the canceling out of all errors that you could not otherwise correct. When you have been restored to the recognition of your original state, you naturally become part of the atonement yourself. Well, let me pause there, because that can be uh, scary. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, am I going to just be mushed up? And, uh, what do you mean I'm going to become part of the atonement? <laughs> and there are other statements in the Course of the Miracles that I, I remember scared me when I read them. That reality is totally formless and abstract. It's interesting that the very statements that scared me the most now bring me the most comfort uh, four years later. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what all that means. We've talked about how things are structured or how we are being told that they're structured at this time. So we've We've been given an explanation that is the most helpful for us at this time. It's come through A Course in the Miracles in a hundred thousand other ways. Essentially, it says the same thing. We've gone over that. It's as if perfect love, perfect comfort, makes itself into something. So it's as if, it's as if God were celestial clay and then he molds you and he molds your sister and your brother and he molds this little podium and these books and the, everything you see around you. Now what we do in our fear and in our guilt is we put a mask over all of this we hold up a very ugly veil so we don't see the beauty that is contained in everything our eyes rest on. That's why those first lessons are so important in the workbook. Stillness, letting go, allows us to see this celestial clay. <coughs> and so, the way we save our marriage and the way we save our relationship with our children is to let our spouse go, is to let our child go. Now this is frightening to the ego because the ego thinks to let, to let go is to reject, to renounce. But it's actually the same thing as said in AA. <coughs> Turn it over to God. That's letting it go. It's a very simple idea, and it's extremely effective. 
The next time you find yourself in one of those murderous entanglements with your child or your relative or whatever, let it go completely. Now, it won't be difficult if you'll let it go completely. If you hold on just a little bit of it, it won't work because you're not letting it go. There's no such thing as holding on a little bit. <laughs> now, letting it go simply means you're not going to tamper with this person. You're not going to tamper with their behavior or their remarks or their fears or whatever it is they seem to be need, needing to go through at the moment, like being a drunk for a while, or whatever it may be. You just let them go, you put them in God's hands. Why? Because you prefer to practice trust rather than distrust. Trust in the universe. Trust in what's going on. In other words, trust in God. Now, the interesting thing about not letting go of our spouse, our child, our mother, our dad, is that we invite the destruction of the relationship by not doing so. And this is how this works. The ego brings bodies together so that minds can separate. So the ego has a picture of the way the relationship should look. And so one spouse tries to force the other spouse, and the other spouse makes the same mistake by saying, uh, I'm above all this, and I don't, you know, and so forth, and you're forcing me. Always two sides of the same coin. Both people are always doing the same little dance of death whenever there's a problem. One spouse tries to force the other spouse into his picture of the way the marriage should look. Is the way the way children should behave, the way friends should be loyal, the way promises should be kept. And so one spouse says to the other, I think we should sit down and talk about this. <coughs> Although his partner doesn't want to do that. The last thing he wants to do is sit down and talk about it. Anytime we try to force someone into our picture of what love looks like and believe we are opposing their will in so doing, we are practicing divorce. We are practicing, practicing separation and alienation. If we try to mold our children into what, the way we think they should behave, this picture, which is different in everybody's head, and this is why there's such conflict over this within a marriage, how should the child behave? We think we are opposing that person's will by trying to force them into this picture. And so we are practicing divorce. And that is death. That is a form of murder. That's a form of killing. To let go and to accept and to trust is to practice life. As you, as you share my unwillingness to accept error in yourself and others, you must join the great crusade to correct it. Listen to my voice, learn to undo error, and act to correct it. The power to work miracles belongs to you. I will provide the opportunities to do them, but you must be ready and willing. 
subduing them will bring conviction in the ability because conviction comes through accomplishment. The ability is the potential. The achievement is its expression. And the atonement, which is the natural profession of the children of God, is the purpose. So we don't turn special relationships into holy relationships. We let go of the special relationship and we see the holiness of the relationship. Now what happens is that we find an increase in love for this individual as we do that. Instead of using guilt, instead of trying to arouse guilt in our partner in order to bring about a picture of love, we let go of all manipulation and we experience real love. just as is true with our own bodies. <coughs> there is no mention of sex in A Course in Miracles, probably because it's such a taboo subject. The, close, <coughs> the closest that it comes to is uh, what we, what we uh, read last time, which is Revelation induces complete but temporary suspicion of doubt and fear. It reflects the original form of communication between God and his creations, involving the extremely personal sense of creation sometimes sought in physical relationships. Physical closeness cannot achieve it. Miracles, however, are genuinely interpersonal and result in true closeness to others, and so forth. Revelation unites you directly with God Miracles unite you directly with your brother. So what happens is we, is we take our hands off of our life and off of our friends and not ask our friends to behave in a certain way in order to be our friends. Then there is this wonderful union that takes place. And love increases. Just the opposite of what the ego predicted. The ego says if you give up guilt in your relationship, if you stop trying to make your partner or your child feel guilty, you will lose their love. And the ego practices this premise very ardently. So our spouse leaves. Spouse has to take a trip or something. Our spouse comes back. Did you miss me? Were you miserable while I was gone? <laughs> the more miserable you were, the more you loved me. And if we say, well, uh, actually, I, uh, I, I think I enjoyed myself while you were gone. <laughs> you did! Our marriage is over! You know, and this is a... Well, didn't you see me talking to that person? But weren't you jealous? No, I wasn't jealous. You weren't jealous? So you see what ego love is based on? It's based on loneliness and misery and jealousy and above all guilt. The evocation of guilt. Now when we give that up, there's this, there's this beautiful blending that takes place. But that's a very scary word to the ego. The ego thinks that union is annihilation. 
because in me it tries to get bodies together and and the uh, the sexual act is when looked at that way is is almost kind of funny now there's nothing wrong with the sexual act anymore there's anything wrong with coming to Western use the sensible church I mean it doesn't make any difference so you know I'm not, we're not singling out certain things in this world and saying some are good and some are bad but all of them can be seen if you look at the way the ego's looking at them you can indeed laugh at them and the Course in Miracles says that the world will end in laughter. When we can laugh at the world, we'll no longer be a slave of it. So the next time that you are either participating in this or you're watching it on one of the, uh, you know, on some movie or something like that or having a fantasy, notice how funny it is that people try to unite with someone else's body. There's this frantic attempt to, to get inside the other person's body, there's just no way to do it. <laughs> and you try as many ways as you can, and you can't do it. So you light up a cigarette instead. <laughs> but real union takes place when real love is allowed to happen. Now, that is the first step. We don't have to worry about our oneness with God and whether or not we're going to be mushed up in some cosmic muffin, you know. Because all we have to do is just experience the little teeny bit that we're asked to experience now. That's how our fear of all these words, oneness, formlessness, stillness, peace. I've railed quite a bit against peace in one of my books, the word peace thought that was a terrible thing to have peace. I actually wrote that every once in a while I like to be slugged in his stomach. I actually wrote that. <laughs> so we're not asked to worry about uh, our oneness with God. The word eternity scares people. Going on forever and ever and ever. Yes, but what if so-and-so's in heaven? <laughs> you mean forever and ever? I'm going to relate to this person? You see? No. It's just love. It's just oneness. You will not find yourself separate from anyone. But that's scary to the ego. So we don't have to worry about that. No one's going to be shoved into heaven. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to worry if you sit down and close your eyes and you happen to meditate the right way. You know, if you accidentally come across the right formula, which we all think is what happens. There's some trick to all this, you know. That suddenly, the gates are going to open, you're going to be shoved in there. <laughs> and you're going to become one. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. Just let a little oneness with this other person come into your consciousness. And that oh, that experience will remove the fear. You will see it means has nothing to do with what the ego thinks it has to do with. Heaven and earth shall pass away means that they will not continue to exist as separate states. That's what it means. That's what it means. So, the other thing that happens is 
And if you take some statements out of A Course in Miracles, you, you can you can think that this may be what we're being called to do, is that we say, as I mentioned in our service last Sunday, we say, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in a world like this. I don't want to be in a world where uh, the car turns and, and a baby rolls out of the door and is killed. I don't want to be in a world where uh, a car runs over a little boy's new, new puppy. I don't want to be in a world where people have to worry about whether or not part of a continent is going to sink into a sea. I don't want to be in a world where, where everybody is constantly trading best friends and there's all this worry about, am I now, am I still so-and-so's best friend because they're seeing a lot of this other person now. I don't want to be in a world like that where everybody dresses to kill. <laughs> and a performer is told, get out there and knock them dead. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't want that kind of world. No, we don't want to want, we don't want that kind of world, but heaven and earth shall pass away means that they will not continue to exist as a separate state. And so our first step is to make this world real. Of course, in miracle says, make the world real. We have the power to do that. We can turn this world to splinter. And that's where we must start. Because God has devised a very gentle way for us to wake up. Now, those of you who've gone into someone's room and have tried to wake them up, they're having a nightmare, or they had to, you had to wake them up the next morning to, to take a test or something like that. But just remember the time you woke someone up and you were having a bad dream. Maybe it was your own child. Maybe it was someone else. And notice, remember how startled and shocked they were. They panicked for just a minute. Do you remember that? They were very confused going from this dream that was so vivid, even though it was a nightmare. And, and certainly they don't, they don't know where they are. Now we, we ask God, we say, God, you are all powerful. Why don't you simply take the ego away from us? And we sit down and we pray in this manner. God, please give me peace. <coughs> God, please take away my irritation with other people. It's very much like uh, a child waking up in a room and screaming, There are monsters! There are monsters all around me! Here's the child screaming bloody murder. There are monsters here! There are monsters here! The child's just... Charles just waking up from a nightmare. And so the family, hearing this, grab knives out of the kitchen, big butcher knives and knives and guns. <coughs> and they run into the room and they and they start shooting and they start slashing with their knives. Now is now what is going to happen if the child sees this? The knives flashing and the guns going off. 
Well, the child's going to think that the monsters are real. That's the, no loving parent does that. But that's what we're asking God to do. Come in and carve out my ego and take it away from me. I don't want it anymore. Well, if God were to remove it in that way, it would merely declare its reality and deny our potential to choose. Because we have an ego only because we choose to have one. We continue to be miserable only because we continue to exclude. As long as we choose that, we cannot ask God to come in, make it real, and take away part of our mind. So the loving parent goes in and very gently <coughs> wakes the child up and says, It's all right. It's okay. You're, you're, everything's all right. You're safe. I'm here with you. And the child cries for a little bit and so forth. And pretty soon, though, the child begins to recognize that everything is okay. He's in his bed and mommy's here and everything's all right. However, that initial business of putting the hand on the child can cause one of these reactions. That first attempt to wake the child up can cause a great deal of confusion and pain. God does not want there to be any pain. And so God has devised the most beautiful way for us to wake up. It would be like this. It would be as if you could enter your child's dream and you could have your child, have the events in the child's dream gently turn into the child going into a room, getting in bed, falling asleep, and so forth. And now the dream of being safely in bed, soundly asleep, dissolves into the fact of the child being in bed and being safe. You see how gentle that would be? And that's precisely what's happening. First, we must see this world as heaven. And then it will dissolve into heaven itself. So that's the first step. That's why it won't be scary. That's why there's not a huge gap. All we have to see is that we have nothing to fear from each other. And that everything in our life is put there to make us happy. Every single thing. And once we have completed that very happy, easy work, and we see the world as innocent, then we will not fear waking in a place where only innocence is seen. My word which is the resurrection and the life, shall not pass away because life is eternal. You are the work of God, and his work is wholly lovable and wholly loving. This is how a man must think of himself in his heart, because this is what he is. The forgiven are the means of the atonement. Being filled with the Spirit, they forgive in return. Those who are released must join in releasing their brothers. 
for this is the plan of the atonement. Miracles are the way in which minds that serve the Holy Spirit unite with me for the salvation or release of all of God's creations. There's a very startling statement, of course, in miracles, and it's said in several places and in several different ways. Jesus, the I in this book, says, I cannot get to heaven without you. I am not in heaven now. I am here helping you. And I cannot enter heaven until every living thing comes with me. And that's not the way we usually think of Jesus. We think Jesus has gone off someplace. Or Buddha or Lao Tse or Mohammed or whoever you wish. <clears throat> The same thing is true for us. We cannot enter heaven as long as one sister, one brother, one child remains in agony. And this is why death will not get us to heaven. A little later on on this page, it talks about the golden rule. We'll read that in just a moment. The golden rule is God's rule. <clears throat> Does God want you to kill him? Because if we apply the golden rule to the concept that death is the way to enter life, then the golden rule would mean that God would want us to kill him. Do unto others as you would have them do unto us, do, uh, do unto you. And so if we apply that with our relationship with God, and if we said, God wants to kill me so that I can experience love, then it would mean that God would want us to kill him. This is so crazy. This isn't God's law that we must die. That is the message of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that you can do anything you want to to a body and it does not kill anything. We have really been given a beautiful gift. And I don't know if anyone has used it in the last 2,000 years. Possibly a few have. I'm not in a position to know. But it's certainly true that by far the majority of people do not use it. We can transcend the body without dying. <coughs> It is not humility, and it is not truly a comfort to tell people that they must die. It's certainly fine to tell them that it's all right if their spouse died. It's all right if they decide that they would like to die, if they've made the decision to die and they want to go on. But it is not necessary to tell them that they must die. And it is certainly all right to support them if they say, I wish to live. We can join the atonement by laying aside our body. This is not so far off that it's not grasped, that we can't grasp it. The Course says there are very few people who have laid aside their bodies so that they can be of more help to others. 
But we can see that process when we close our eyes and we feel someone reaching out to us and we help them in our prayer and find out indeed they have been helped. Or as we talked about last time, we have a moment of love and peace and we see how many people this has affected. We get just a little glimpse of it because we hear something that happened at the same time and something else. And we wonder how many others were helped at the same time. But our body had to be laid aside for just an instant in order for that to happen. We weren't running around the house vacuuming and making the bed and making sure that there were no spots on the on the uh, uh, glasses that came out of the dishwasher. Because we're of no help to anyone when we're doing that. Nor do we have to be preoccupied with that while we're doing it. And certainly the answer is to just sit in a chair I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what we do with our mind is how we help people. And the time comes in which we will indeed see that we do not have to die. We can lay aside our body without this happening. Because we do it, in fact, in our tender and deepest meditations. Notice that we do this. Notice that you do this when you pray. For just a moment... You have opened the door to this cage that says to you, you cannot help anyone who is not physically in your presence. And you cannot help most of the people who are, because the body is so limited. And you have only the, the reach of its tiny grasp. You lay aside all that nonsense, and you deeply bless this person. Please do not think that you must die. Please do not think that God calls for his own children to die. <clears throat> and please see all the other ways that we think that death must occur as we go through the day. We can begin practicing that now. The time has come. Isn't 2,000 years enough? That we can accept the gift. This is how it's done. And Jesus goes off and he's told everybody this and Lazarus goes ahead and dies anyway. And he comes back and he just weeps. Don't you say you don't have to do this? He says. I am the only one who can perform miracles indiscriminately because I am the atonement. Now that means we do not go around telling a specific individual that they shouldn't die. <clears throat> this is, the Holy Spirit speaks only to you. He does not speak to anyone else, says the Course in Miracles. So we, we don't tell someone else, if they've made a decision to die, that this is in any way wrong. Nor do we try to talk them out of it. We support them and we love them unconditionally. We, we say, I'm going to love you even if you do decide to die. Even if that appears that you're leaving me. I support you. I love you completely. If you wish to die, I give you my peace. I will comfort you every bit of the way. But we must be open to the opportunity to lift someone out of that thought that they must die when they want it. Not when we think they should want it, but when they truly want it. 
Now we can begin raising the dead. <clears throat> We're not raising the dead now. And we can begin this. There are no order, there, there is no order of difficulty in miracles. So we're open to it. And if this person thinks that he must die, but does not want to, then we can reach out our hand to that person also and say, it's all right to live. You will not enter heaven simply by destroying your body. And so you need not think that this is the aim of life, the goal of life. You need not postpone your happiness thinking that until your body is destroyed, you will not have a conversation with God. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people who are suicidal say that to me. I want to kill myself so I can have a talk with God. They really think that this is a way to talk to God. That God demands their blood before he will talk to them. That is so crazy. When God is talking to us all through the day, we'll just listen to our own thoughts. We can hear his gentle voice. You have a role in the atonement, which I will dictate to you. <clears throat> Ask me which miracles you should perform. This spares you needless effort, because you will be acting under direct communication. The impersonal, impersonal nature of the miracle <clears throat> is an essential ingredient because it enables me to direct its application. And that means we don't hold on to our spouse if our spouse wishes to leave now, if our spouse wishes to die now, whereas it's okay if the neighbor wishes to die. Impersonal, impersonal. See, impersonal seems, seems very cold to the ego, that word, impersonal. Uh, impersonal means no love because the ego thinks that, that love has to do with special exclusive relationships among bodies in which other bodies are excluded. Impersonal means just the opposite. It means flooded with love and joy about every living thing. The impersonal nature of the miracle is an essential ingredient because it enables me to direct its application. And under my guidance, miracles lead to the highly personal experience of revelation. A guide does not control, but he does direct, leaving it up to you to follow. Lead me not into temptation means recognize your errors and choose to abandon them by following my guidance. You can turn very specifically to God, to Jesus, to your inner guide, to whatever you want to call it, and say, now, just like a big brother, and say, okay, now, what do you want me to do here? Very direct. What do you want me to do in the situation? Error cannot really threaten truth, which can always withstand it. Only the error is actually vulnerable. You are free to establish your kingdom where you see fit, but the right choice is inevitable if you remember this. And here is a little prayer or point. Spirit is in a state of grace forever. Your reality is only spirit. Therefore, 
you are in a state of grace forever. Now, doesn't that deserve a hand? Uh, That's the way things are. It's okay to be grateful for that. Atonement undoes all errors in this respect and thus uproots the source of fear. Whenever you experience God's reassurances as threat, it is always because you are defending misplaced or misdirected loyalty. When you project this to others, you imprison them, but only to the extent to which you reinforce errors they have already made. This makes them vulnerable to the distortions of others since their own perception of themselves is distorted. The miracle worker can only bless them, and this undoes their distortions and frees them from prison. Yes, we make mistakes, but the Course is pointing out here, you do not truly hurt someone else when you make a mistake. You simply reinforce their mistake, which they are choosing to make. That's why you have not victimized another person. You have, however, made a mistake and joined with them in this mistake. Now, this is true whether we're talking about abused children or battered women or rape victims in the penitentiary or on the street. It doesn't appear to be that way. It seems clearly that one person has victimized another. No, each person joined in the mistake. That's why neither is guilty. They simply made a mistake, but they both made it. If this were not true, then the rapist would indeed be guilty. And when you kill your child's joy by being abrupt or saying to them, uh, okay, if you're not going to leave the mall with me, I'm just going to go on. And you walk up and this terrorizes the child. You see the child screaming, bloody murder. They don't understand that, that you don't mean this. You know, that you're actually you're going to walk away from the child. They don't understand this. And you say, oh my God, look what I've done. Suddenly you realize what you've done. You thought that they could understand this game. Since we all play this game with each other. Okay, I'm leaving. I'm packing my bags. (laughs) It's divorce time. (laughs) Right? So we think that a little child will understand that. And suddenly we realize the little child didn't understand that at all. Does that mean we victimize the child? No. Because the child is more than a body. And the child has simply joined us in our mistake. And the solution to the child's pain is not to make ourselves feel guilty, which just walls us off completely. Now we have no use to anyone. We reach out in love and we say, I would never leave you. Don't you know that? to what you perceive and as you perceive so shall you behave the golden rule asks you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you this means that the perception of both must be accurate the golden rule is the rule for appropriate behavior 
You cannot behave appropriately unless you perceive correctly. So sometimes when someone asks us for something, we're surprised that our guidance tells us to say no. But our guidance is perceiving correctly. And just because the person has asked for it with their mouth doesn't mean they're asking for it with their heart. That's why the golden rule is it must be based on correct perception. That's why we cannot decide how we want others to behave toward us. Since you and your neighbor are equal members of one family, as you perceive both, so you will do to both. You should look out for the perception of your own holiness to the holiness of others. So from our own holiness, we look out to the holiness of others. This is why it is so important that we feel God's love. This, this corniest of all phrases that we've heard so many times. That God loves us. How can we truly make someone comfortable and assure them and brush away their fears if we haven't ourselves experienced God's love? This means we must open our heart. We must lay down our defenses. And we must take the time to experience God's love. Let's take that time now. If you just be comfortable for just a moment, if you want to put down anything that's in your lap that would make you more comfortable, if you just close your eyes, I'm going to remind you of what you already know. But may be afraid to experience. It's okay to experience it right now. <coughs> there is one statement in A Course in Miracles that many people overlook. And it is, all of God's children are special to him. You are very, very special to God. God takes you where you are and welcomes you. Where are you? Well, I think I'm standing up here leading you in a meditation. Do you think, possibly, that you're sitting in a chair? God takes you where you are. He doesn't ask you to think you're not sitting in a chair with your eyes closed. He takes you where you are and welcomes you. He asks that you do the same for yourself. So, with your right hand, would you please reach over to your left arm and just rub up and down. And just say to yourself, I welcome you. You're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> you got a ways to go, but you indeed, oh gosh, you came to Lester and Hughes Dispensable Church. That's an effort. You walked up that incredibly long hill with all the ice. Think of all the things that you've done today and yesterday. You have actually... There have been some moments in which you 
You tried to make someone feel good, and you were gentle, and, and you were patient for just a moment. Now take your left arm and rub up and down the other side. And say, you know, you're okay. You're coming along. God hasn't finished with you yet, but you're making pretty good process. Pretty good progress. And now reach both of your arms around yourself and give yourself a hug. <laughs> God takes us where we are. He loves your body. Because he knows you think you are a body. So he talks to your body. He holds your hand. He hugs you. And he talks in your ear. Just hold your hands in your lap now. And please, please, please let yourself hear God talk to you. He's talking to you right now. He's, he's holding your hand right now. Don't defend yourself against this. It, you're not foolish. It's not foolish to feel God's love. You don't have to defend yourself against that anymore. I'm going to be quiet now and just feel God. Let go of all the resistance. He loves you now. Feel it deeply, deeply, deeply. Covering you. Relaxing you making you so happy. Okay, you can open your eyes. This is what you have to do. You don't have money to earn. You don't have to flush the toilet or make the bed or break the bed, uh, bed, uh, break, <laughs> This is what you have to do. Every time you think of it, plop yourself down in the chair and see if you can't open yourself up to the gift of God's peace, which he wants so much for you to have. He knows how to come to you. We are deceived. We think we are bodies. He knows how to come to us while we think we are bodies. He knows what love means to a body. Don't you think he would hold your hand and you would feel that? Miracles arise from a mind that is ready for them. By being united, this mind goes out to everyone, even without the awareness of the miracle worker himself. The impersonal nature of miracles is because atonement itself is one, uniting all creations with its creator. As an expression of what you truly are, the miracle places the mind in a state of grace. The mind then naturally welcomes the host within and the stranger without. When you bring in the stranger, he becomes your brother. That the miracle may have its effects on your brothers that you may not recognize is not your concern. The miracle will always bless you. Miracles you are not asked to perform have not lost their value. They are still expressions of your own state of grace. 
but the action aspect of the miracle should be controlled by me because of my complete awareness of the whole plan. The impersonal nature of miracle-mindedness ensures your grace. But only I am in a position to know where they can be bestowed. Miracles are selective only in the sense that they are directed towards those who can use them for themselves. Since this makes it inevitable that they will extend them to others, a strong change of atonement is welded. However, this activity takes no account of the magnitude of the miracle itself, because the concept of size exists on a plane that is itself unreal. Since the miracle aims at restoring the awareness of reality, it would not be useful if it were bound by laws that govern the error it aims to correct. So it doesn't need time. It doesn't need effort. It doesn't need pouring over books. It doesn't need some sort of uh, evolutionary or karmic process. Why should the miracle obey the laws that it has come to brush away and set you free? There would be no need for that. Never do you need to think that there is some miracle that cannot happen in your life. All you need to do is to not decide what that miracle is. But if you find yourself thinking that there are certain areas of your life in which a miracle could not occur because of time, distance, size, longevity, something, that is simply not true. It's a needless limitation we have placed on ourselves. God knows how to come to us. He knows how to remove any source of pain that we may have. Now before we do the lesson, I, I want to remind you of one other thing that, that we talked about last time. And that is that A Course in Miracles states clearly that there is another maker of this world. Now this is clearly how the East and the West thought that they were not saying the same thing. Because all the metaphysicians saw this other world, this counterpart. Plato saw. And all the metaphysicians and all the, the mystics in the 1800s saw it. And then they heard what was being said in the East about nirvana and oneness and so forth. And they thought, well, there's a conflict here. We're right and they're wrong. No, they were just each seeing a different stage. One was seeing that first we must turn this world into heaven, which we can easily do if we just set out to do it. And then it dissolves into heaven itself, in which there's only oneness and peace. So there is, in fact, no conflict between the two. When we see that there is another maker of this world, that indeed we did dream an awful, bloody dream, but that every aspect of it was answered, <clears throat> that every bird that broke its wing began to sing. And we're seeing this. How many, 
how many people who die and seem to die in agony have come back to tell us 20 minutes, 30 minutes later or something, they appear to be dead. You can't pick up a newspaper. You can't pick up anything which you don't read one of these stories. It's all over the place. They come back and say, no, no, I didn't suffer at the first blow. God removed me from that situation. I mean, we're hearing this all over the world now. People are saying this. Yes, the first perception of this world is indeed awful. But there is another maker of this world. When we uh, look out the window and look at our brother or look around and see this other creation, this counterpart, this, this way of turning hell into heaven, we don't have to keep going through that process every time. Once we, once we know that that's a fact. So you don't have to go through this long reasoning process. The time has come for us to stop doing our work and treating and having scientific thought. We don't have to do that anymore. Because you can go to the bottom line. We've already gone through that over and over and over again. How to pray correctly, getting it right, learning all the laws, reading all the books. We don't have to do that anymore. We've, we've, we've gone through that process. Now we're at the bottom line. We see that the counterpart, the dream of Christ, is so much more real than this that we can go straight to that now. So you can say that everything in your life has been put there as your gift. <coughs> so you can say, my child is a gift to me. That's a fact. You can look at your child and see that he's just there to make you happy. You can look out at the snow here at Santa Fe. Yes, there is the initial impression. Snow clogs the streets. Snow gets dirty. Snow gets on our pants and on our skirts. And snow causes accidents. And snow uh, gives frostbite and on and on and on. Oh, yes, you can look at snow that way. Well, you don't have to go through that anymore. Because there is another maker of snow. Now there is God's snow. Because both things can't be true. Our brother, our sister, cannot be internally dark, and yet at the, at, within them, deep within them, have gentleness and peace. And who in this room has not seen his sister and his brother turn into the child of God? Who has not had at least one day or one hour in a day in which you have walked the streets and walked the sidewalks and seen the innocence of everyone. You've seen how precious is each person. Everyone has at least had a moment when they say, gosh, we're all doing the best we can. Everybody's, everybody's innocent, aren't they? Anyone who's had that experience, please raise your hand. Maybe someone didn't raise his hand. I didn't see anyone did. Now, that's the fact. It can't be both ways. This person cannot be selfish, out to get you, no better, and so forth, and at the same time be innocent. The two perceptions absolutely contradict each other. We've already seen that. We don't have to go through that argument again. We don't have to deny it. Simply go to the bottom line. I'm in this car driving to Albuquerque. 
because God knows it will make me happy. That's now the purpose of it. And I look out at the snow. It's God's snow. God has made every single snowflake, every single snowflake of the billions and billions and billions of snowflakes that are around us, each one different. Just in case I happen to pause and look at the snow and see one of those snowflakes. That's the only reason. If I happen to look down, he wants to see, he wants me to see that this little snowflake is different than all the rest and it's so beautiful. God has put the birds in the trees just in case I happen to stop thinking about the future and the plans and what people did to me and what I've got to do and I've got to earn a living and on and on. I'm getting so old. and Just in case, you know, just in case we forget that for a second and we hear the bird sing or we hear a little rustling in the trees. You cannot look anywhere that you cannot see God. If you wish to, in the stones... You can even see how much fun people had when they threw out all the junk out of their windows. And now it's all over the streets and everywhere. <laughs> you can say, gosh, I bet you that, uh, that sucker really tasted good. You know, there's the wrapper and so forth. <laughs> you don't have to say, those swine. <laughs> 